Welcome back to Check Displeased, the podcast where we are finally, finally, finally excited to talk about a comic strip. We have a big treat for you. I am so hard right now. Who's with me here today? <laughs> I'm Tomato Greens. I'm Secret, and uh, we are reading through Check, Please. It's the seventh episode we're recording, and it's the first episode we're excited for. Today, we are reading the long-awaited strip 1.5, Bad Bob Zimmerman. And it was posted originally on July 15th, 2013. Do you want to tell us what happens in this strip? Oh, I would be delighted. Please, please. We open with Biddy, once again addressing his vlog audience. Side note, still not sure who watches the vlog. Biddy opens with this moment of vulnerability saying, I've been thinking of quitting, but then Samuel's expensive without an athletic scholarship. And then there's explaining to my dad, but he admits that he's not sure he can survive the season playing hockey. We then get a flash. Uh, Coach Hall telling Biddle, finish a scrimmage without flopping. Jack just like wailing on Biddy saying, this isn't a joke, either get with the program or quit. Biddy making a little determined face. We then go to the locker room in Faber uh, and we see Rance, Holster, and Shitty comforting, I guess, Biddy um, by just calling Jack a bitch. Flash a fucking hockey Nazi every once in a while. And also mentioning Bad Bob because that is Jack's dad. And when Biddy asks, who's Bad Bob? The whole room gets the full side eye. And Biddy says, wait, what did I? Y'all quit staring at me like that. This is exactly what happened before the football team locked me in a utility closet overnight in the seventh grade. We then flash over to Biddy in his dorm room, comparing not knowing Bob Zerman to not knowing who Michelle Kwan is if you're a figure skater, not knowing who Lucille Ball is if you're a sitcom writer, and not knowing who Beyonce is if you're any breathing human. We then get two slightly more photographic images, the first of which is Bad Bob holding the Stanley Cup above his head, captioned, so after 10 seconds of Googling, I found this. It's Jack's dad hoisting the Stanley Cup for the third time in 1978 with the Montreal Canadiens. And then uh, another picture where Bad Bob is holding a bizarrely happy-looking baby and who we will come to know as Alicia making a horrified face. They're holding him above the Stanley Cup on the ice, and the caption is, and this is Bad Bob's son Jack pooping in the Stanley Cup in 1991 with the Pittsburgh Penguins. Jack's the only person in the NHL's history to have done that more than once. The pooping, that is. And there we have it. That's the strip. I went mad crazy writing out an outline for this episode with like all sorts of shit, no pun intended, about everything referenced in this comic strip. And I failed to include anything about the Stanley Cup. It completely escaped my notice that that was something in this comic strip. The Stanley Cup is a pretty standard thing to know about, whereas maybe other things in the comic are, are less immediately clear. There's a lot else to think about in this strip anyway. Oh, we're gonna, this is gonna bleed into the next episode almost certainly because they kind of bleed into each other. So um, at the top, what do we learn about Biddy here? I'm interested in Biddy here and sort of the way that he 
engages with hockey and with sports, but also specifically with like vulnerability. I think Biddy's engagement with vulnerability throughout the whole strip is like a continuously changing thing. This seems really vulnerable to me, really genuinely vulnerable, even in the drawing, which by the way, is already tighter than it was like four strips ago, which is good job and gozy. Also, Biddy's eyes are getting bigger. <laughs> so eventually they'll reach their final state. Uh, but in this particular strip, he just looks really concerned in juxtaposition to Ransom Holster and Jack dreaming or being super broy in the locker room. Like, what does that do for him as a character? Even if you go back to the previous strip, I think her lines in this particular episode are just much more fluid. They seem less jerky. The overall thing seems less a built-up sketch and more like a final line drawing. Everything seems sort of more connected and self-assured. I think she is, at least in Biddy's dorm room, reusing backgrounds, but that's a that's a really good point. It feels like things are cohering, more willing to put in details, and things are starting to look a lot more consistent. You know, her backgrounds are still a little like right angly and certainly less developed than they would become, but she's really taken a big leap forward here in terms of the sort of confidence of her drawing. It looks a lot less amateurish, and I'm saying that to be fully complimentary. Things really cohere for Check Please in this strip. Her dialogue bubbles become much more proportionate to what she's trying to put in them. And they get laid out, I think, a little bit more deliberately. Shitties tend to crowd people out. They're not obstructive. In terms of the posture on Biddy, in the first panel where he's introducing the situation and confiding in his vlog audience, his posture is sort of like tight and narrow. His eyes are shifting and he's drinking himself to take up a lot less space in the frame and it almost looks like he's shrinking away. Contrast that with the panel where he's saying that stuff about now apparently asking a hockey player who Bob Zimmerman is where he's reacting to the situation or weighing in on what's happening and he looks a little more expansive and a little less timid. She's doing a good job of depicting him having a performative conversation or delivery to his audience. I think Ngozi is pretty good with body language and good at thinking about how body language is different in different spaces. And so I'm interested how his body language like shifts in this room alone versus in the locker room, which again, we can talk about when we get there, I guess, because there are elements in common and then other things which are less in common. The first thing he says is that he wants to quit the team, but he hesitates to do so because Samwell is expensive without a scholarship. When you play Division One hockey in the United States or indeed any Division I NCAA sport, you are more than likely to be recruited to the school by the school and offered a scholarship to attend the school. Division I sports teams are not located entirely at great schools. Some schools have better sports programs or better academic programs. The school has the ability to essentially lure you there through an athletic scholarship. I think Biddy is implying that he is getting a full-ride scholarship, which means probably that the team wants him. He doesn't say, 
I can't afford Samwell without a scholarship. He says it's expensive without a scholarship. So he may be implying he couldn't attend without a scholarship. He's not outright saying it. Samwell is a fictional school. It's not technically an Ivy League. I don't think anything in canon establishes that it is. Not all of the schools in ECAC, hockey, are Ivy League schools, and not all of the Ivy League schools are in ECAC either. However, I think because Ngozi went to Yale, Samwell's attributes are largely based on her college experience at Yale. This coming year, just tuition, so merely the right to enroll in the school and attend courses, is about $58,000 per year. When you add in room and board, it goes up to about $78,000, a giant amount of money. That's higher than the median income in the United States. Tuition for the year that Biddy is starting school in 2013 was only $44,000 for tuition and $57,000 with fees. I will put a footnote here about tuition to Yale, which is that since 2010, any student from a family with an income of under $65,000 has been getting a full ride scholarship. And any students from 2019, so this current year, from a family with an income under 75000 has been getting a full-ride scholarship. It's often cited in the Check, Please fandom that Georgia high school football coaches are fairly well paid. Yeah, they, they do make in the $100,000 a year range. Some very prominent ones can go up to $150,000 a year. The base salary for some Georgia high schools is much closer to 50, or it's in the sort of 50 to 100 range. The thing about money is that it's super relative. We don't know a lot about Biddy. We don't know a lot about his family. Let's say his father is making $100,000. I think there are tweets stating that his mother is also employed doing something. I don't know what. So it's possible that she makes some money as well. The cost of living in Madison, Georgia is probably not super high. It's possible that they have enough savings to send Biddy to college. It's also possible that they don't if Biddy does quit the hockey team. I think he would get his scholarship for the rest of the academic year, and then he would have to start paying tuition starting with his sophomore year. So if he quit in like the fall of his freshman year, he would have plenty of time to get accepted to a less expensive school. So his whole life wouldn't be fucked, like no matter what happens. Just to be clear, Biddy would be fine. Biddy's family income is likely to be over $75,000 a year, or I guess at the time it was $65,000 a year. So even if $100,000 a year sounds like a huge amount of money, they still can't afford a full tuition to this school unless they have some kind of savings or their cost of life is extremely low. We just don't know enough about the Biddle family to figure that out based on the information we have in the comic. Now I'm done. I also just want to briefly comment on being recruited for a school like Yale or Harvard. This is something that happened to a couple people I went to high school with. 
it's a big deal. Recruitment is for really good players, which were not the people I went to high school with. Um, it can be like a bidding war. I would imagine that in at Samwell, much like the actual Yale recruitment is not as big of a deal as it might be at, at like a football school, but it's still a fairly big deal and it's fairly prestigious. There are a lot of opportunities for very or relatively low income students, depending on the situation, to get really good financial aid. Not loans, mind you, but financial aid, especially to schools like the kind of school that Samwell seems to be. Very old, very prestigious, very well-established schools that have endowments in the billions of dollars and readily give out very generous financial aid, especially to students who otherwise wouldn't be able to attend. Of course, on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who can just afford to pay out of pocket. It's the people in the middle, which is the vast majority of people who tend to have problems or need some other kind of help. Yale or Harvard are unusual in their generosity because they have the ability to give out a lot of money to lure students there. They also already have very, very extensive, very well-connected donor networks because all of the richest and most able people have been graduating from their schools and then succeeding for, in some cases, centuries. The Georgia education system is actually quite good. Georgia has a number of extremely high quality universities. Biddy is certainly not screwed if he chooses to stay in Georgia. Athens, Georgia, which is where the University of Georgia is, the school whose flag Biddy has in his room at the house later on, is a really cool, really progressive college town. Biddy would not be out of place there. He would probably have an experience like fairly similar to the one that he would have at Samwell. If Biddy wanted to go to school in Georgia and his GPA were high enough, he would also be eligible for a HOPE scholarship, which would cover a giant chunk of his tuition, regardless of whether or not he was going to a private or a public school in Georgia. Sometimes I do feel like this comic is framing the idea that like playing hockey for Samwell was the only way Biddy could ever have a good life. And I'm not saying Biddy doesn't deserve the experience he has. Like I went to a really nice out-of-skate school. I didn't have a bad time at all. So it's not like I'm begrudging Biddy this. Biddy would be fine if he just went to school in Georgia and didn't bother with any of this. I also just want to quickly touch on the idea of the Northeast as this sort of like haven for queer people, which it's not. I'm very familiar with New Haven for familial reasons. It's not necessarily the most progressive city out there. There are certain places that are quite accepting and then other places that aren't. Samwell may or may not be in a city. We're not totally sure. I know that there are like references to the murder stop and shop and then the racist stop and shop. So there are at least two stop and shops. That doesn't tell us anything about the kind of place it is, whether it's urban, suburban, or fairly rural. I would imagine probably not that rural. 
but it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell whether this is like a Cambridge situation or a New Haven situation. The Northeast is also not a totally accepting, diverse, wonderful place and that in both urban and in rural areas, there are areas which are less accepting. So it's like kind of interesting to position these two places against each other when actually I think they are probably both quite similar in that there are communities which are really diverse and open and then other other places where that is just totally not acceptable. Athens is a college town. If Samwell is also a college town, they're probably pretty similar. College towns are like not that different from each other. People love Athens, Georgia. Love. People who went to UGA are obsessed with it. They think it's just like this perfect little utopia that was the happiest time in their lives. And I have a feeling because Biddy's got a UGA flag in his room at the house that like probably his parents went there and probably he's heard a lot about how awesome UGA is and he just doesn't want to go there. And part of his personal development is leaving that part of the world. And all I have to say to that is two things can be true at the same time. It's absolutely his right to want to do that. And you can have an amazing life experience if you step outside of your comfort zone and go somewhere new. But also, if you just went to school in Georgia and don't get a brand name education, you'll be fine. Every single person who I'm close to who went to Yale hated it. Clearly that's not Ngozi's experience, which is great. I agree that there's like something really curious about the narrative being presented as his only option as opposed to simply the option he took. There's totally nothing wrong with wanting to go to like a really nice reach school. It's an increasingly rare experience. I think his wanting to do this had a lot to do with his own personal journey of like identity construction and trying to find himself in the world. I guess he's at Samwell because Georgia maybe has bad memories for him as we find out when he says the football team locked me in a utility closet overnight in the seventh grade. You know, I always thought that that was being set up as like a precipitating incident that had caused some sort of trauma that maybe there was a link between that and the fact that he kept flopping, as the coach says in this strip. I guess not. I guess it was a completely separate incident. That might have been the culmination of a series of many unpleasant incidents, but it certainly wasn't treated with the narrative depth and weight that I would expect a site of trauma that I would have expected her to return to that specific incident. It's kind of used as like a little joke here. It's not really being like pathologized in a way that we'll start to see other things in the comic being pathologized. It's said almost as an aside. It's also really interesting that it was said in a locker room, which is often a site of tension, um, whether homoerotic or violent. Like to me, that's kind of an interesting little juxtaposition. You know, they're all sort of equally in a vulnerable state here. Like Ransom and Holster are more naked than Biddy is. There's like an equalizing factor here. None of them seems more important than the other. We talked a bit earlier about how just being on the hockey team prevents people from being assumed to be different because they've chosen to enter into this sort of normative space where it's presumed that everybody is the same and not weird 
and not gay. In that sense, maybe like the locker room framing is sort of working as like a protector in that sense, where they all have the same size stall, they all sit in the stall in the same way, they're all facing into the middle of the room, everybody just sort of gets the same thing. Even the staging, right, is kind of like that. Biddy isn't in the center. And I love Biddy's face in that frame, where it's like half embarrassment and shock, but also kind of like a goofy comic expression. It's good. I like that. His irises get smaller to help that goofy expression. While I was reading this comic, I tried to like act it out. He's kind of sitting with his arm hooked over the chair, and he's using the chair to sort of keep himself anchored as he bends forward and like extends himself out and is like making this hand motion where he's like, apparently both of his wrists are bent, but we don't know that he's gay yet. It's just this really nice, really expressive movement. He is really comfortable in this space. And like now that he's like complaining about Jack, but I did this pose and I don't think anybody who wasn't making a point would ever sit like this, but I just, love it because it says a ton about his character and it matches exactly what he's saying in this panel. There's a question here of whether it's still Ngozi figuring out like how to do kind of more conversational poses or whether it's a performative thing for Biddy. I mean, I I would happily say maybe both, but there's something kind of amazing about this like irritated side eye that he's making where the only word that I can use and I use this word like lovingly is just like a little bitchy and there's something kind of amazing about the way that he's like Ugh. like that's the expression that I feel coming off of that facial expression in that hand is Ugh. Michelle Kwan understood and then Beyonce fair Lucille Ball really gets me that that is Biddy's go-to sitcom is like really astonishing. It just like fills me with glee. Let's get into it. I may have mentioned I did some research. So Lucille Ball is also the one that gets me. Lucille Ball was a trailblazing figure. She was the, I think, first woman to run an American TV studio when she founded Desilu with her husband at the time, Cuban band leader, Desi Arnaz. She's not a writer. She was a very important producer. Her power in the industry and her staying power makes her iconic. I grew up watching I Love Lucy on like Nick at Night and also The Lucy Show on Nick at Night. I don't know. Is this something that somebody of Biddy's age would even think about? And I can tell you that although I had certain cultural understandings because of like watching uh, Nick at night at my grandparents' house or or whatever. My students didn't necessarily. Also, interestingly, Desi Arnaz was much more influential in the development of like the multi-camera sitcom than Lucille Ball was. So my experience of talking about like certain cultural touchstones, which just happen to be like late night TV for people of my age, are not necessarily late night TV for people five years younger than me. So I'm left wondering, did Biddy seek out I Love Lucy? Was this like a campy situation that he was just drawn to? Because there is something really wonderful and over the top. And there's no surprise that sometimes drag queens dress up as like I Love Lucy, right? There's like a there's like a campiness to it, which I think is in keeping with queer sort of like cultural tones and images. There is nothing in this comic to indicate that Biddy has ever seen a drag queen. But I, I just am really curious. What does it mean to grow up as a closeted kid in a 
sports family in a place which clearly, at least to Biddy, did not feel very welcoming. Who do you look to? Who do you try to model yourself after? It seems like he would probably be drawn to things that were very obviously not straight. That's safe, right? When it's not particularly like nuanced in its campiness or not particularly secretive in its campiness. That's something to explore, at least in the privacy of your own head, which is very obviously not like, quote, normative, end quote. So I wonder whether seeking out kind of like figure skating, Lucille Ball, I don't know, Beyonce seems like fairly normative. Also, I just realized all three of these people are women. I would say the in-universe example is probably that Biddy is like busy because, you know, he's doing college and he's having hockey. He probably scripts these videos before he, you know, gives his arm over back at the share monologue. And he just needed like a third thing because rule of threes and this is what he was able to come up with. Out of universe example is that I think, you know, Ngozi was interested in some screenwriting and also... This is pretty early in the comic, and she maybe didn't necessarily know, like, where this is going. But in terms of the larger arc of Biddy's life, figure skating, obviously important to him. The Beyonce thing, other than pies, probably, like, his biggest (laughs) defining character traits. But I don't believe that Lucille Ball, or indeed even sitcoms, comes up ever again. I don't think Biddy gives a shit about Lucille Ball or has any thoughts about, like, the Lucy show and... You know, what hijinks are we going to get up to after we move to L.A. in season four? How are we going to keep Mr. Mooney on the show? <laughs> like, I'm much more invested in Biddy and his relationship to what I think you called the conniving housewife. And so, and so like, kind of Biddy's relationship to, like, this role of passive-aggressive, manipulative, performative, caretaking. Like, I don't know. There's something kind of interesting that is, I'm sure, not meant to be foreshadowing. I'm sure not meant to be kind of meta-narrative commentary, but that is there to be considered. Michelle Kwan. I think overall there's less to say about this because I don't know that much about figure skating. It's interesting to me that this was somebody who was iconic to you. I knew who she was, but like no specifics about her. I just knew she was like a 90s competitive female figure skater who was like good. Her sort of highest achievement was that she got the silver in Nagano in 98. But then I was surprised to see that actually another American figure skater who is much better known these days, I think, Tara Lipinski took gold. Tara Lipinski had a shorter overall career than Michelle Kwan, who went on to Salt Lake City in 2002, where she medaled again. She got bronze. And she also medaled at Worlds every year between 96 and 2004. Just a a note, because we've mentioned that Lipinski got gold and Kwan got silver. Uh, Lu Chen from China took bronze at the 98 Winter Olympics. Biddy would have been like three when she was skating in Nagano, and he would have been seven when when she was getting bronze in Salt Lake. So I don't know. Maybe it's just she was famous in terms of figure skating around the time Biddy was getting into figure skating. I'm not necessarily sure it's any deeper than that. Part of the reason she's iconic in my experience is that I have Asian American people in my family, and so she was like Asian American. This is the first in-comic reference to Biddy loving Beyonce. I wanted to break this down a little. This comic 
was written seven months before the self-titled album Beyonce was released and the accompanying visual album that was like a surprise overnight release in December of 2013. The last album that Beyonce had put out was Four, her fourth studio album, which came out in 2011. My recollection of Beyonce at this period was that a lot of people thought she was like an amazing pop diva. She was not this like flawless goddess artiste yet who had transcended pop stardom into the echelons of genre-bending auteur that we place her in culturally now. How would Biddy be thinking about Beyonce at this point in time? I think it's easy to back read this comic and think about all of the things Beyonce has done, how much those have impacted what we think of her in 2020. I went back and I thought about the context in which Biddy's opinion of Beyonce would have been forming. And Like I said, the last album she'd put out at this point was four in 2011. She gave this iconic performance at the VMAs in August 2011, where she performed the song Love on Top. And I have decided, because I am fucking insane, to do some close reading of Beyonce lyrics, and then I'm going to whip it around and sort of bring it back to the Eric Biddle. This song, Love on Top. Everybody asks me why I'm smiling out from ear to ear. They say love hurts. But I know... It's going to take the real work. Nothing's perfect, but it's worth it. After fighting through my tears, finally, you put me first. Finally, you put my love on top. And it's this like elevated ballad where she is like belting out exuberantly. You put my love on top. But it's all in this context of like, after all of this bullshit where you've mistreated me, finally put my love on top. That's pretty dark to me. The other song from this album that I think was a single, like, was the song Countdown. I have listened to Countdown so many fucking times since I discovered that it existed about seven months ago because I am transfixed with how fucking insane the lyrics in this song are. There's ups and downs in this love. Got a lot to learn in this love. Through the good and the bad, still got love. I'm all up under him like it's cold. Winter time. All up in the kitchen in my heels. Dinner time. Do whatever that it takes. He's got a winner's mind. Give it all to Kim. Meet him at the finish line. Ladies, if you love your man, show him you the flyest. Ground up on it, girl. Show him how you ride it. Oh, you got me all gone. Don't ever let me go. Say it real loud if you fly. If you leave me, you're out of your mind. It is impossible to parse what the fuck is going on in this song. And I think the only way to read it is that it is just like chock full of pathos because it is ridiculous. It's this bizarre juxtaposition between like, I am subservient to my man. I love him so much. Grind up on it, girl. Show him how you write it. Perform for him. Cooking dinner in the kitchen in your heels. Also, there's a lot of ups and downs in this love. Got a lot to learn. It's really weird for a song to like cook him dinner in heels and then get fucked, like all up under him. And then also this weird thing where it's like this floating sequence of like, you got me all gone, don't ever let me go, say it real loud, if you leave me, you're out of your mind. It like doesn't make sense. There's something real dark going on here, 
But the tone of the song does not tell you anything about that. Fucking Biddy, like, his entire personality is formed around this pop artist whose output is just, like, mind-bottling to me. I've basically been waiting to expound on what the fuck is it about Biddy and Beyonce for a long time. And all I can really figure out is that Ngozi really likes Beyonce and she just imputed that to Biddy. I mean, I think metatextually that makes a lot of sense. There's a history of glamorous pop icons beloved of gay men. I do think that he fulfills a very specific set of characteristics that are coded in a particular way. He's small. He's cute. He moves his hands with lots of bent wrists. He loves like a pop icon glamorous like lady. He's a bit flamboyant. He wears colors unlike these New England boys. So I don't know whether this is a very intentional character choice, whether Ngozi likes Beyonce and so like threw her in here, whether this is a choice based on that set of characteristics, which are often attributed to like queer characters. I think it's hard to say. Someone going to college at 18 and being screamed at by a 23-year-old is a really fascinating power dynamic. And the reason I bring that up is not to make a parallel with Beyonce's life, but to simply point out that Beyonce's husband, Jay-Z, is 12 years older than her and met her when she was very young. Something kind of interesting happening there that may be worth putting on a shelf and examining, even if it doesn't like go anywhere, about these sort of tropes of like what being married is, what being in a relationship is what it means to be like serving your man in whatever capacity, right? While also feeling this kind of protectiveness and this resentment and this anger and this frustration, which also is very obviously on all the lyrics that you just cited. So again, I don't know that this is like a deliberate narrative choice. And in fact, I would assume it was not, but I think it's worth examining because I don't think you can parallel those experiences. There's two very different things going on, not least of which Biddy is fictional, but there's like something happening there that's worth thinking about. Do whatever that it takes. He got a winner's mind. Give it all to him. Meet him at the finish line. I guess for Biddy, that might be gold. Do you want to talk about Jack? I always want to talk about Jack. Well, I wrote down in the outline, Jack is terrifying. There's like spit coming out of his mouth onto the onto the fiberglass faceplate of the hockey mask. His eyes are the palest they've ever been. The online version, Jack says, this isn't a joke. Either get with the program or quit. And joke and quit are both in bold and all cap. They're both in caps but they're not bolded in the print version. That's interesting as a change, just because I wouldn't like think of it, I guess. Well, she decided to make him less mean. I just think he looks crazy. I think he looks crazy and terrifying. And I am flagging this panel because he is standing over Biddy, leaning down, shouting at him. The way that Biddy is like biting his lips or like holding his tongue. He just looks like he does not even know what to do with this man. In the next panel, he says, again, this isn't something Jack has done once. It's something he's doing a lot. Probably most practices, if most practices Biddy is falling over and he's now talking about quitting the hockey team, 
I would guess that this is part of the environment that's making him think, I can't do this. Well, it's also, he starts out this strip by saying, I'm thinking of quitting. And we see Jack saying, either get with the program or quit. And you can sort of see Beatty in this panel kind of like, ugh, maybe I should just quit rather than deal with this. Flagging this panel, because there is one that comes up a couple years down the line, mirroring this one. Oh, he's bitchy. Uh, everyone calls him bitchy. Shitty says he's bitchy. And then Holster says he's always bitchy. I also really love the Holster uh, canon. That Holster never really liked Jack that much. <laughs> um, I think that this probably changes by the end when everybody loves Jack and Biddy uh, with their whole hearts because they're perfect. But at least in this part of the comic, it seems like Holster is still a little frustrated, let's say, by Jack's bitchy attitude. I'm also really interested in like being called a fucking hockey Nazi. And I'm also really interested in this idea that like Jack's bad behavior is excusable, presumably because of his skill. Like I'm really interested in what Jack's relationship is to the rest of the hockey team as far as we can tell based on this strip. We know what it will become and we know what Biddy's relationship to Jack becomes. But at this point, what have we seen Jack do? He yelled at Biddy about protein. He was like, why is this kid on this team? And now he's screaming in Biddy's face. That's an escalation of aggression that's pretty interesting. I used the word pathologized earlier almost immediately. As soon as Jack starts to display this behavior, it starts to get like explained to us immediately. Like next panel, the bros on the hockey team who we've spent a lot more time with than Jack start to kind of tell us like, oh, don't even worry about it. He has reasons why he's like this. Don't worry, he'll chill out. As soon as he starts displaying this behavior, everybody tells Biddy like, ugh, don't even worry about it. Like, oh, he has, you know, he's like this because reasons. Here's what I wrote right under Bob on the outline. I mean, I'd fuck him. He's not real. And this is his child. You know what? (laughs) Two for two. There is an extra where Jack says that Bob is turning 57 in January 2014. So that means he was born in January 1957. So he would have had Jack when he was 33. He was winning that cup with the Pens when he was 34. He would have been 21 when he was winning the cup in 78. The strip says that he's winning his third cup with the the Canadian in um, 78. So that means that he would have won one at 20 in 77 and then another at 19 in 76, which I guess means he was drafted in 75 or got into the league in, in 75. People ask how many Stanley Cups he wins. Based on this trip, trip we know that he's won four. The Canadians once again won the cup in 79. They won four years in a row. So unless he was traded directly the next season, he would have won a fourth. The Pens won in 91. And then they actually won again in 92. So again, unless he either retired at 34 or was immediately traded somewhere else, he would have won the cup again. Light estimate, he won like four to six Stanley Cup. I'm trying to quickly Google because I can't remember how many uh, Stanley Cups Wayne Gretzky, the most famous hockey player probably, whose wife's Instagram, by the way, is a real joy. Um, But four to six Stanley Cups is an insane number of Stanley Cups for one person's career. Less insane 
for hockey of the period of the 1970s through 1990s than it is for a player now. I mean, it's a surprising number. I mean, there was an era of hockey when teams would be dominant for so long and hockey careers would be long enough that there are like enough guys who all have like seven cups or something that Gretzky doesn't even like rank up there. I guess I'm thinking about Gretzky because he's playing in approximately the same period as Bad Bob. Many, many people, like 15 people who have won six cups, another two dozen something players who have won five cups. And that's where the list cuts off. This list, by the way, is like predominantly Montreal. It still speaks to not only Bad Bob's specific skill, but also the kind of teams he was playing on. To answer the question of how many Stanley Cups Gretzky won, he won four and they were all with the Oilers in the 80s, 84 and 85 and 87 and 88. Bad Bob's career has almost existed tucked around the edges of what Gretzky did. Yeah, this guy, this guy's kid, the, the, the kid who poops in the, in the Stanley Cup, you know, he grows up and gets hot. Anyway, <laughs> I've been thinking a little bit about sort of these real life uh, parallels to Jack Zimmerman, aka in my mind anyway, these sort of like hockey RPF darlings of Sidney Crosby and Jonathan Taves. And specifically thinking about this story about Sidney Crosby. Sidney Crosby's dad seems like quite a character. Um, and he started baby Sidney Crosby skating when he was quite young and like had him practice shooting pucks into an old washing machine. It's a dryer, okay? I watched the infomercial about it. It's a dryer. So he used to shoot these pucks into and dent the door of the dryer. I'm interested in that parallel only because I think there's a compelling case to be made that certain aspects of Jack's personality at least comes from the perception of who Sidney Crosby is, whether that's in hockey media more broadly or in hockey RPF. It seems kind of grim to me to have your like failed-ish NHL father set you up at three to practice shooting pucks all day. How did Jack get started? Is this something that he always wanted? Is it something that he was pushed towards by his father? It's hard to tell. I don't know that we have enough information to make any definitive guesses about it, but I think it's just because of the parallel between this real life dude and Jack Zimmerman. It's like something interesting to think about. I believe it has been stated in like extra canon materials that Jack was just born. I think the word she uses touched in the head with hockey skills and that he truly just is this prodigy. He's just supposed to be this preternaturally good at hockey character. Now, to what extent Bob's influence instilled this in Jack or imbued this in Jack, I don't know. I think this is a topic that like really bleeds into the next comic. Not only being the son of somebody who is like a world leader in something, but also you have an innate talent at that thing where it's obvious that you are also marked for greatness. I think it's really fucking tough with that combination of things to like not basically live your life as if it is predetermined that you will do that thing. We don't see many other things that Jack possibly could have also done. I do not relate to Jack at all because the idea of just being born into a career path and developing no other outside interests that you could possibly turn into a life's work strikes me as entirely impossible and unrelatable. But that is the particular thing about Jack's character. 
It is intrinsic to his character that he is a hockey player. I don't think this is true of anyone else in the comic. They all seem like they could be deposited elsewhere. The reason why it's so interesting to read and write thick about Jack being forced out of hockey or not doing hockey is because what is Jack without hockey? And I think the answer in the comic is there is no Jack without hockey. You can't even answer that question. He's born directly into the Stanley Cup. That's painful. But just how exciting. What an interesting character detail. I can't believe people think this character tops. Me neither, frankly. In the United States, we have a principle called fair use, which means if you are using these things in a transformative context, that means you are using it for an artistic purpose to tell a story rather than using it as what it is to sell that thing, then you you have the freedom to use it openly. So nothing is being violated here. This is the exact kind of thing that fair use exists for, is to be able to draw the Stanley Cup in this context or draw, you know, some version of the Montreal Canadiens jersey. Uh, you'll notice she does a little editing, actually. She takes Habitant H out of the Canadiens logo, I guess, just to cover her bases. Oh, I didn't realize that. Interesting. Mm, in the print version, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's there online, but she takes it out in the print version. I think she would have been okay if she hadn't. I was going to say, and then forgot halfway through, so if Jack is the sort of like semi-allegorical representation of hockey, at least that's one way to read his presence in this part of the comic, I wonder whether the comic's changing representation of Jack is in any way connected to its changing relationship to hockey. Well, I think a question that's sort of hanging over this podcast that we've circled back to a couple times is like, what is the relationship of this comic to hockey? Is it critiquing? Is it fully embracing here or over the next couple of strips is going to be really interesting to think about in dialogue with like the last few strips. But I'm really interested in when Ngozi changes her art style, but in very specific moments, like these two sort of quote photographs that Biddy found on Google, where the line art suddenly recedes. And I wouldn't say that these are realistic, but they have a more painterly quality than the other cartoonish strips. And I'm curious what that does for this perception of Bob Zimmerman, you know, the best hockey player whoever fucked Alicia Zimmerman. I don't know. Sorry, Alicia Zimmerman. Maybe that was disrespectful. You want to know what's interesting is if you write a fic where like, that's not even true. Alicia and Gretzky. All right. I'm sorry. Please, you guys, please buy his wife's weight loss gum. This is a real advertisement to go look at Wayne Gretzky's wife's Instagram. It's uh, at Janet Gretzky. Please go look at it. She does actually sell weight loss gum. I haven't seen the weight loss gum come up recently that said, I am now looking at her Instagram and she did post a screenshot of a daily briefing on Fox News about the coronavirus. So, oh boy. (laughs) That way you will. When we get more into talking about Alicia Zimmerman, I would love to talk about Janet Gretzky and sort of hockey wives. I'm curious about this 1991 picture of Alicia and her sort of midriff bearing 90s outfit. She quite recently had a baby and she's back in model form. And I'm like very interested in that. She is canonically the same age as Bob. So she's not much younger. She's also 34. Yeah, she looks good. I love this face that he's making where he's like sticking his tongue out and disgusted at his son. 
I'm out. I don't want to see that face when they call my name second. But more about that next time when we get to an even better strip. 1.6, The Hockey Prince. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I forgot when we started this project that there would be strips that not only filled me with like a fun glee, but also that made my veins on fire. When I said I was horny for comics, this is when I was like, oh my God, I can't wait. However, I will say I am also kind of horny and can't wait to talk about some of the really bad ones like three years from now. Oh, well, I'm pretty excited for those conversations as well. I have a lot to say about it all. That'll be different fun. All right, guys, this has been Check Displeased. We'll see you next time where we talk about the hockey prince. I'm Secret. I'm Tomato. You can find us at checkdispleased.tumblr.com. Yeah, that's true. Send us some ass so we can spend two and a half weeks discussing how we want to answer them. Bye. Bye. Adiós, amigos.